Hi, I'm Steve, and uh, I've got the second Bible reading for today, which is Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, which is up on the screen. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirar. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who he named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother and brother's wife and fulfil your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hirah, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shiloh had now grown up, she had not been given him as his wife, given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, so she, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, "'Come now, let me sleep with you.' "'And what will you give me to sleep with you?' she asked. "'I'll send you a young goat from my flock,' he said." Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, 
the men who lived there said there hasn't been a, any shine, shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her his young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognised them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Sheila and he did not, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zira. Thanks be to the Lord for his word. Uh, thanks, Steve. My name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. I'm going to be preaching today on this uh, interesting passage. It's uh, certainly perhaps not one we might expect to see in the Bible. So uh, do keep your Bible open as we work through it. Uh, you'll also find an outline for today's sermon in the uh, handout if you're a note taker, if that would help. But as we begin, I'm going to pray. Uh, so please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is all your counsel, and that it is all your word, even the bits that are hard to understand. Uh, please help us today as we consider Genesis 38. May you use it to continue shaping and moulding us in our Christ-likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, what are we to make of that Genesis 38, I mean, it really is just such a terrible story, such a terrible story of abuse and of scandal. Imagine if, um, if it came out that Anthony Albanese or Scott Morrison, imagine if it came out that they'd done that, they'd be sacked instantly, they'd be out the door. It's just, that's how bad it is, just such a story of scandal and abuse. And so you might be wondering, well, why is it in the Bible then? Why does the Bible have such a story like this? In fact, perhaps you were even thinking that as Steve was reading out before. Maybe you were thinking, what on earth is this? Why is this here? Well, I think it's an important passage and I think it's particularly important because of where it's situated. So if you look at the end of chapter 37 and the start of chapter 39, they almost continue on seamlessly and then jammed in the middle of them is this seeming detour away from the story of Joseph towards his brother Judah. And so I think the fact that it does feel a little bit misplaced actually shows us it's quite an important passage and it's there and Moses had a point for us. And I think the point that he's trying to teach us is not something about Judah or Tamar, but about God. Because even though these events here happen to Judah and to Tamar, it's God that's the main character. God, that's the one that it's trying to teach us about. 
And so what is it that it's trying to teach us about God? Well, it's showing us the kinds of materials that God builds with, the kinds of people that God uses to build his kingdom. And we all know that materials matter. Uh, The other day, Cassie went out at night with some friends and uh, that meant one thing for Levi and I. It meant a boys' night, uh, just me and Levi. And so uh, we decided to eat the most manly meal imaginable. Well, I say Levi and I, I just mean me. I decided to eat the most uh, manly meal imaginable. But as you know, materials matter. Like what you use matters. And so being a boys' night, I, of course, didn't get any salad. I didn't get any vegetables. I did not get a single healthy thing. In fact, uh, this is what I went to the supermarket and bought. I bought some uh, ribs and some potato and some Pepsi. Uh, If you're concerned that there's two cans of Pepsi there and you think I'm getting Levi onto soft drink too early, uh, don't worry, they were both for me. Um, I drank them both, so, so don't be concerned about that. But we know, of course, that materials matter. If you want to have a good boys' night, you need the right food. And it was a successful boys' night. This was the meal in the end, roast potato and uh, barbecue pork ribs. And and it was great. It was glorious. We both ate so much that we couldn't move. But we could do it all because we had the right materials. We know that materials matter. When a house is being built and you're laying the foundation, you need the right mixture of concrete to make sure that that foundation is set. If you don't have the right materials, then the whole house could collapse. Or what about sports teams? Last year in the AFL, uh, Melbourne won our, we actually broke a 57-year premiership drought, and it was glorious for long-suffering supporters like me, but we were able to do it because we finally gathered the right materials, the right players, the right people. We all know that, don't we? Materials matter. And so why is Genesis 38 here? Well, because it shows us what kinds of materials God uses, what kinds of people God uses to build his kingdom. And we might expect that for God, only the best of the best would do, the smart, the charismatic, the godly, the skilled, the charming, the gifted. But actually, what we see right throughout the Bible is that God constantly uses the unexpected He uses the messy and the messed up people. For example, think about Abraham. If you were going to pick your fertility champion to start a whole nation, who would you pick? Well, certainly not the 90-year-old who has no children, whose wife is also old and is barren. Yet that's the material that God uses. He builds his nation through that man. God uses the messy and the messed up people. What about the story of Jacob and Esau? Uh, Esau is the oldest son. He's the, this kind of big, manly, hairy hunter, the kind of heir that anyone would want. And yet, who does God work through? Jacob, the second-born mummy's boy, who's a liar and a deceiver. God constantly uses the unexpected, the messy and the messed up people. And what we see in Genesis 38 is perhaps the messiest of all people that God uses, Judah. And boy, is he messy. Just in this chapter alone, we see seven strikes against Judah. In baseball, it's three strikes and you're out. But for Judah, there are seven time and time and time again. We see just how messy and messed up Judah is. And yet, that's the kind of material that God uses to build his kingdom. 
And so into that passage. Now, I remember from that, as John pointed out helpfully last week, that uh, Judah is actually number four of the kids, but the others, Reuben, Simeon and Levi, have all been disqualified. And so now we're meant to wonder, well, will Judah be any better? And straight away, we see that he's also going to be a letdown. It might seem innocuous, but verse 1 actually sets the, folk, sets the tone for the whole thing. Have a look at verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hera. Now, we might kind of hear that and think, well, what's the big deal? He's just moving out of home. But there's more going on than that. Remember, in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham a special land. And then what we see here in the story of Joseph is is Abraham's descendants are living in that land. They're living in the land that God promised them. Yet here, Judah moves away from that land. And he moves away from his family. And so, in a sense, he's moving away from the promises and the people of God. And it shows us just a little bit of a glimpse into Judah's heart, what he thinks about God and what he thinks about God's promises. And so, that is strike one. Judah abandons God's promises. And then in the very next verse, we see strike two. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Have a look at verse two. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. Now, again, that might seem innocuous. We might think, oh, well, he's just getting married. That's okay. But remember, God's people here have actually already explicitly been told, don't marry Canaanites. And yet, what does Judah do? He marries a Canaanite. He disobeys God's explicit command. And so what we see is, again, a glimpse into Judah's heart, what he thinks about God and what he thinks about God's commands. And so it's strike two. And so even in these first handful of verses, we already see two quite significant strikes against Judah. As Judah seeks to distance himself from God's people and God's promises. As he disobeys God's commands. And this is a helpful reminder for us that distancing ourselves from God and God's people is often the start of a downward spiral. One of the worst things we can do is detach ourselves from God's people. Because for Judah from here, things go from bad to worse. In verses 6 to 10, we see strike 3. It's all about his kids. And if we thought Judah was bad, his kids are just as wretched. Uh, The first is Ur. We're not told much about him other than he has a wife named Tamar. And that he was so wicked that God put him to death. Now, interestingly, in Hebrew... Uh, the, the name Ur is actually wicked spelled backwards. And so what a name to give to your kids to spell wicked backwards and then give it to them as a kid. You're not giving them a good head start in life. But nevertheless, that's what Ur is. He is wicked and God puts him to death. Uh, the next son is then, uh, the next son isn't much better. He's Onan. With Ur dead, the duty falls to, uh, with Ur dead, the duty falls to Onan to have a son for Ur. Uh, with Tamar. Now, this is called a leveret marriage. It might seem quite weird to us that this is how things would happen, that you would get the second son to marry the wife of the first son. But this was quite a common practice in those times, and it was actually put into God's law later on. And this is just what you did. And the intent was to make sure that your dead brother had a son to continue on his line, to continue his name. 
And it's even more important here because this is about continuing Judah's line, about continuing the promises God made to Abraham. But Onan completely disregards that. He's not interested in continuing his brother's line. And by extension, he's not interested in continuing God's line or God's promise. And so we might think, well, it's not a big deal. It's just an early form of conception, contraception. But it's more than that. This is Onan deliberately scorning God's promise. And as he does, he's also abusing Tamar because he's happy to keep sleeping with her, to keep using her but he doesn't want to fulfill the duty that goes along with that. And so that is wicked. And God acts accordingly by putting Onan to death. Now, we might think that God's being harsh here for putting these two uh, men to death, but what it's meant to show us is that God is a just God and God will hold wickedness to account. And that then also, uh, by extension highlights to us just how merciful God is as well. Because if this is what uh, Judah's, uh, Judah's sons deserve, one strike and out, how much more does seven strike Judah deserve? He also deserves judgment, and yet God in his mercy spares Judah. And so that's strike three against Judah, his sons. But we might think, well, why is this Judah's fault? Uh, he can't control what his kids do. And in a sense, that's true. I'm sure we can all think of people, godly and gracious parents, whose kids didn't follow in their footsteps. I mean, sometimes that's just the way of life. And if Judah had have been a gracious and a godly man, then maybe would have chalked it up to that. But just remember how bad Judah has been at this point. Just last chapter, he sold his own brother into slavery. And so he's clearly not a good guy. And so it's clearly a case of like father, like son. And so even though Ur and Onan certainly bear some responsibility for their own wickedness as well, it's still a strike against Judah. And so strike three, if this was baseball, he'd be done for. But it's not baseball and sadly there are many more strikes to come because Judah now has a chance to do what's righteous. He has one more son, Shelah, and so he promises to give him to Tamar in marriage as well once he grows up. But what happens? Well, a long time passes, so long that Judah's wife dies. And yet, he still hasn't given his third son to Tamar. Uh, We'll pick up just at verse 14, and Tamar has just enacted an elaborate plan, and then this is, it tells us, because she saw that though Sheila had had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. See, Judah has broken his promise. He's failed to go through with it. He's fearing that he'll lose this last son, that God would put this son to death as well. And so his fear stops him from doing the right thing. It's fear fed by not trusting God's promise. And so in many ways, Judah is just as bad as Onan. The the specific way he carries it out might be different, but it's still a willful and deliberate attempt to not continue God's the line of Vern, by extension, God's promise. And so that's strike four against Judah. What a wretched and cowardly and gutless man this is. But sadly, and almost impossibly so, things still get even worse from here. Because sheep shearing season comes, and in Canaanite culture, this was a time to kind of let loose and go wild. 
And so Judah arrives at this kind of giant feast, ready to shear his sheep, and he sees Tamar. And he thinks that she's a prostitute, and his lust takes over, and he wants to sleep with her. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. When Judah saw Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had, her cut, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. I mean, isn't that just such a sickening situation? And for Tamar to even think of using this tactic, Judah must have slept with prostitutes before. Otherwise, why would you even think of this being a, a tactic to use? And so Judah and Tamar then kind of haggle and they settle on a price, a young goat. But Judah doesn't have it with him. And so he gives her his staff and his seal. Now, that's a little bit like giving your credit card and your driver's license. It's like your, your identification and your promise of payment. And so they then sleep together. And it's just a truly revolting situation. Judah shows such disregard for God's good design for human sexuality. Strike five, perhaps the worst of the lot so far. Then comes strike six. He doesn't even pay for the debt that he owes. He sends off his friend to go and find her to pay. His friend goes there and, and can't find her. And so what does he do? Well, he gives up so quickly because it might be embarrassing if people find out. Have a look at verse 23. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. He's just scared that he's going to be embarrassed, and he should be embarrassed. It's, he should be embarrassed for his wickedness. Yet, rather than actually putting in the effort to go and track this lady down and make right his promise and his payment, instead he just gives up so quickly, fails to pay his debt, strike six. But amazingly, he's still not done. There's one final strike. Judah is also a merciless hypocrite. Because a few months later, he finds out that Tamar is pregnant from prostitution. And when he finds out, he wants to kill her. Have a look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. Now at the time, burning someone to death was a legal option, a legal payment or legal penalty for prostitution. It was something you allowed, but it was the absolute most extreme penalty you could do. And yet, what does Judah do? He jumps straight to the harshest, most extreme penalty he could give. Doesn't go for something a little bit lighter, the absolute harshest possible. But what's even worse is that this is what he just did. He wants to have her burned to death for doing the very thing that he himself is guilty of. He's a hypocrite. And it really is just the icing on the cake of this whole sordid affair. Strike seven. He's a merciless hypocrite. And so that's seven strike Judah, just a disgusting and contemptuous person. Time after time after time, he outdoes himself with wretchedness. I mean, this is the kind of person you'd be embarrassed to know, leave alone to be related to. Yet here he is in all his disgusting glory. He truly is a messier, messed up person. And I wonder, what would you expect 
God to do to a person like this? I think we'd expect that God would judge him. I think we'd expect that God might even put this man to death. He certainly deserves it. But what we see in his mercy is that God spares him. He doesn't give Judah what Judah deserves. And in fact, even more than that, what we see is that God uses this revolting man to build God's kingdom. And in the last little bit of our passage, we see a glimpse of that. We see a glimpse of something better. Because as Tamar's brought out, she asks Judah whether he knows who the staff and the seal belong to. He sends it to her, sends it to him. And as Judah sees it, it dawns on him what a fool he's been. Have a look at verse 26. Judah recognized the seal and the staff and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. It's like the, the ultimate gotcha moment. We've been hearing about gotcha moments a lot at the moment with the federal election on. This is like the ultimate gotcha moment. She set it all up and he walks straight into it. And as he does, he recognizes that she has acted better than he has. Now, it is worth noting that he doesn't say she is righteous. Uh, just looking at the situation, it's clear that what Tamar has done is not great either. As children of God, the ends never justify the means. How we get somewhere matters just as much as where we get to. Prostitution and sexual infidelity are always wrong. But nevertheless, in this situation, Judah realizes that Tamar is more righteous than he is. Though uh, you might say that's a low bar to get over. But nevertheless, she is more righteous than he is. Because she, a Canaanite woman, has been more concerned with continuing Judah's line than Judah himself. And in so doing, she's been more concerned with continuing the line of God's promise than Judah himself. And Judah realizes that. And I think what we see there is the first glimpse of a change in Judah. And we know there's true repentance because he doesn't sleep with her again. And then the next time we see Judah in this story of Joseph, he actually is a changed man. Remember, in Genesis 37, Judah is willing to sell his own brother into slavery to make a quick buck. Yet in Genesis 44, the next time we see Judah, he's willing to give himself up for the sake of his younger brother. And what we've seen be between them is that something has changed in Judah. And that is God at work in and through messy and messed up people. And it reminds us that God doesn't use the kinds of people we'd expect, the kinds of material we'd expect. He works constantly through the unexpected. And we see that even with that last little bit about the sons there, about Perez and Zerah. Uh, while they're being born, Sarah's hand comes out first and they tie a scarlet thread around him to signify that he's the true firstborn. But then the hand goes back in and Perez comes out. And so officially, Zerah is the firstborn, which might not seem that significant to us today in our culture because parents usually divide the inheritance equally amongst all their kids in our culture. But you've got to remember that wasn't the case in those days. The firstborn had all of the blessing. He was the one that everything, all the focus went on. Yet, what's happening here? 
though Perez is not actually the true firstborn, still he's treated as the firstborn. Still, he's the one that the blessing goes to. His line, just like Jacob. See, God works through the unexpected, through the messy and messed up. And we see that even more when we think about who Judah is and who Judah's line is. Because remember what line, what son of, uh, of Jacob Jesus comes from? It's from Judah. We had that read out before for us in our first Bible reading, but just briefly flip with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Here we see the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus. Now starting at verse 2, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The line then that continues down, but we'll pick it up again at verse 15. Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. How amazing is that? That Judah, this absolute scumbag, is the ancestor of Jesus. That Judah's line is the line that Jesus came from. Did you realize that? See, if ever there was a failure, Judah was one. A moral failure. At every point, he stuffs up. And what about Tamar? I mean, she plays the role of a prostitute. She tricks her father-in-law and sleeps with him to have a child. What scandalous actions. And yet, what happens is that Tamar is also mentioned in Jesus' uh, genealogy. He's one of only four women that are mentioned. He's honoured. She is honoured there. And even more impressively, she wasn't even one of God's people. She was a Canaanite. And yet still, she's in there. Her name is recorded because God took the wreckage of sin and brought about a glorious purpose. See, God works through the messy and the messed up people to build his kingdom, to bring his saviour. And in fact, that saviour is the only one who's not messy and messed up. He's the only one ever who hasn't sinned, who hasn't messed up at some point. And yet, in his lineage, we see the most wicked and terrible of people. And I think that shows us that this Saviour can identify with us. This Saviour can identify with us because he comes from people just like us. People with messy and messed up lives. He himself is sinless. But his ancestors are so sinful. And so it's, what, it's such an encouragement for us then that this Saviour understands and this Saviour speaks for us. And so that's Genesis 38. It really is just a, an interesting passage. But it shows us the kinds of people that God builds with, the kind of materials that God uses. And so when we think about that, isn't that such an encouragement for us? Because the reality is that we're all just like Judah, in, in big ways or in little ways. All of us are messy and messed up people. There are things that we have done, times that we have messed up, sins that we've committed that we regret, whether that's uh, sexual misconduct and sin, whether that's failure to act with integrity and honesty, 
whether that's deeply hurting those we love, we've all messed up in countless different ways. And I wonder, have you ever felt weighed down by that? Like maybe you're beyond redemption, that maybe you are too far gone. Well, what Genesis 38 shows us is that we're never too broken for God to restore. No matter how sinful we are, God can work a miracle in us and change us. See, God worked here to bring real redemption and real restoration and real renewal in the lives of Judah and Tamar. See, Jesus loves us in the midst of our dysfunctional messes. He never loves us less, no matter how much of a twisted mess we might be. And he came down into the mess of our lives and he died for us so that we might be forgiven. And then through the power of his spirit, God is at work in us, restoring us, renewing us, redeeming us. And so do take heart from Genesis 38. You are never too broken for God to restore. And you're never too broken for God to use. I wonder, have you ever felt so messy and messed up that you felt like God could never use someone like you? Well, what a comfort it is to look at Genesis 38 when we feel like that because it reminds us that actually those are the exact kinds of people that God uses, that we are the exact kind of people that God uses to build his kingdom. Broken people, messy people, sinful people. See, God doesn't use the perfect and the righteous and the sinless people. Why? Well, because there are none. Other than Jesus, who is the only ever sinless person, every single one of us is broken and messy in some way. We're just like Judah. And yet, God uses messy people just like us. That's the pattern we see over and over again in the Bible. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer. Peter was a coward. Paul was a terrorist. But God uses people like that. Why? Well, because it shows just how great God is. In our weakness, God is strong. In our sinfulness, God is gracious. And so take heart, you are never too broken for God to use. In a moment, we're going to sing perhaps the most well-known hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. It's written by a man called John Newton. You might be familiar with his story. Uh, He was a modern-day Judah. Uh, Before he was saved, you know what he worked as? Yeah, he's the captain of a slaving ship. Uh, not just a slaver on there, but a captain of it. Of all the wretched things throughout human history, the slave trade has to be one of the worst, buying and selling people as commodities to make money. It was just horrendous. And yet, Newton wasn't just a slaver, he was the captain of a ship. I mean, that's about as bad as he can get. And then later on in life, reflecting back on his earlier life, this is what he said about himself. I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. It says he loved sinning, and he actually loved making others sin as well. This is the kind of man that he, John Newton was. And yet, God worked spectacularly in John Newton to bring him to saving faith. He restored Newton, and then he used Newton 
Uh, God used Newton in many ways. He used him as a minister at those, those times while he was alive. I used him as a hymn writer to, sing, to write songs like Amazing Grace that uh, we're about to sing 300 years later. And praise God for that. But God also used him as part of the abolitionist movement, which ultimately resulted in the end of slavery in the British Empire. Such a wretched sinner, yet used so powerfully by God. And it's no wonder he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. See, that's who Newton was, and that's who he became. But only because of God's mercy and God's kindness. And so today, be encouraged. That is who God uses. People like uh, Judah, people like Newton, and people like us. We are never too broken for God to restore and for God to use. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Please uh, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, passage, Genesis 38. Uh, it might seem difficult. It might seem unexpected. It might seem surprising, some of the events that happened there. But we thank you that in it, it shows us just who you are and just the kinds of people that you use. And we thank you that you do use broken, wretched sinners like us. Uh, please use us, we ask, to build your kingdom, to honour your name. Uh, we know we only do it by your power, by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.